0: Well, good morning again, beloved. Thank you, brother. Good morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Luke chapter 3. If you're visiting with us this morning and you perhaps forgot your Bible, or you don't have a Bible, um, that's not a problem. We would love to, to supply you one this morning. So if you need a Bible, we just invite you to raise your hand, and one of the persons in the back will be sure to bring you one. This morning we are continuing a series that we have called Getting to Know Jesus. series through the Gospel of Luke, one of the synoptic Gospels in the New Testament. Uh, One of those Gospels, or you might use the word biographies, uh, of the life and the the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have, as the series title suggests, we have this main sort of goal in thinking through this Gospel. We want to get to know Jesus. We want to get to know him better, who he is and what he's done and, and what that means for us. Now, getting to know someone is not always easy. Turns out that one of the most profound questions that you'll ever be asked is, who are you? It's a simple question, really, three words. Yet it it calls forth a lot more than just a three-word answer. And it's one of those questions that in every culture, and every place, people ask. So we lived in the Cayman Islands for eight years, and uh, the way they ask you who are you in the Cayman Islands is, is who you fuck? Who you fuck? That means who are your people? Where are you from? We got all kinds of ways of, of sort of saying who we're for or who we are or where we're from. And, and we understand something of the importance of this. So the importance of this was sort of emblazoned on my little introverted preteen mind by My mother. Because whenever I was around my father's side of the family, I would shy away, go to the room or something of that sort. And my mother would always say, Boy, then your daddy's people. You need to know your people. We need to know your people. Turns out that who your people are has a lot to do with how you answer who are you? That's no less true of the Lord Jesus Christ. The question that runs through this gospel and every gospel and the the question that's often asked even today in conversation is, who is Jesus? Who who is he? What do we we know about him? Where is he he from? Who's he from? Who's his people? And that question has a lot to do with authenticating that Jesus Christ or that Jesus is the Christ. And that's what we want to consider this morning in Luke chapter 3. Now we live in the real world, and we know that in the real world sometimes even a question like, who are your people, is complex. There's another saying that I heard my mother sometimes say, mama's baby, papa's maybe." You can get that on the way home. and When there's some controversy around the the parentage of the child. As was the case with Jesus. Mary was pregnant, but she was only betrothed to uh, to Joseph and Joseph had not known her and there was some scandal, at least to the amount where Joseph was thinking of putting her away quietly. Now, oftentimes in those kinds of circumstances, there's all kinds of questions that are raised. There's a kind of gossip about the baby. There are questions about who he really is. And so our first question as we come to Luke 3 this morning is, What do the people people say? say? What do the people people say about about this young young man, Jesus? But then there are other questions. questions. The second second question is, what does does the the father Father say? What does the father say about this child? child. And number three, what does the test say? What does the test say? So when it comes to Jesus, you don't need Jerry Springer to prove paternity. You need Luke 3. Here we have the the testimony of the people, the testimony of the Father, and the test itself, the genealogy of our Lord. Luke chapter 3. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from the stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he asked them, whoever has two tunics, As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open. and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matha, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagnia, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of shealtiel the son of Neri, the son of Melki, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mattath, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Minna, the son of Mattha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse. The son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. The son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serut, the son of Rud, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Amen. Three questions to frame my time this morning as we think about who is Jesus and and we see here that he is is indeed the Christ. And the first question is, what do the people say? And we see this in verses 1 to 20 because there we're told about the the public ministry of of whom we call now John the Baptist. You see his context there in verses 1 and 2. John begins his public ministry uh, as Luke tells us here in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. That's the Caesar, that's the president, that's the ruler of the Roman world. And beneath him is a governor named Pilate. And beneath Pilate is this tetrarch, you see, these these three tetrarchs who rule various regions. So um, there is Philip in the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias in the region of Abilene. And then there is the one who's ruling in Galilee, Jesus' hometown area, Herod. Not only does Luke tell us about the political hierarchy of Jesus' day, but notice in verse 2 he tells us also about the religious hierarchy. There's Annas and Caiaphas, the the high priest. We're given the entire sort of civil order. We're given the entire sort of political power of Jesus' day. And not only that, the ecclesiastical or religious power of Jesus' day. And and we're left to think that these are are the movers and shakers. These are the power brokers. These are important men. The striking thing about the context is the end of verse 2. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah. In the wilderness. (laughs) It's interesting to follow where God's word goes. We've been thinking about Luke's gospel. I've been thinking about the various scenes. And and did you notice that the word of God, the revelation of God, keeps coming to the little people? Then go to the Caesars. It doesn't go to even the, the ruling priests with their robes and ecclesiastical titles and, uh, and, and their fancy sermons. No, it goes to shepherds in the field watching by night. It goes to a little virgin girl. It goes to old men and old women well past the age of bearing children. And it goes to their son, John, who doesn't love the world or follow the ways of the world. He's out in the wilderness. And there are two things about verse 2 that clue us in to John's prophetic status. Number one is just that phrase, the word of God came to him. That's a formula that comes right out of the Old Testament that's frequently used in the Old Testament to talk about God's anointing and use of prophets. But number two is that reference to his being in the wilderness. How often God sends a man into the wilderness to prepare him for the work of the ministry. And this was the case with John. Now Luke's gospel... In many respects, it's a gospel where the little people are the heroes. And that's a wonderful thing in a world, and including a Christian church, where people are intoxicated with the powerful. We love the elites, we, we love the celebrities, we love the rich and the famous. This is why on many of our Christian television shows we get so excited because some rapper or some singer or someone has come to know Christ and we we pray that they have and we do rejoice, all of heaven rejoice at the repentance of a single sinner but I suspect we get happy because they're rich and they're famous and we think somehow the credibility of the gospel is enhanced because the wealthy and the powerful believe. God's ways are not like our ways. His thoughts are not like our thoughts. His thoughts are higher. And sitting higher, thinking higher, he looks lower to the little people. I I believe verses 1 and 2 is is a sort of gospel version of what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. You remember what Paul says there? He says, I'm paraphrasing, God didn't choose the powerful and the wise and the strong. He chose the weak things, the foolish things, the despised things to confound all that. That's what God is like. He sends His word to little people, and John comes prophesying. We see his public context there. Notice now verse 3 down to verse 14 we get his public ministry. Verse 3 gives us the summary that John went throughout the region notice proclaiming. When the word comes the preacher preaches. It's like fire set up in his bones and so John goes proclaiming throughout the region. Notice what he proclaims. A baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. I love John. John got one sermon. And the truth is, every pastor only has one good sermon. It's the gospel. <laughs> and, that's, and this is what John is preaching. He's preaching a baptism of repentance and of forgiveness. Repentance is an important word in this text. It simply means the, a change of mind, a change of heart, and a change of direction that follows. Uh, we, we were, all of us, in our, in our sins apart from Christ, we were driving toward the city of sin. And then something happened and we switched lanes and we turned the car around and now the city of sin is in the rearview mirror and we're driving now toward the city of God. That's what repentance is. That turning in the heart and the mind which results in a changing of direction of the entire life. John is preaching his heart out. You must repent for the forgiveness of sins. And those two things go together like hand and glove. There is no forgiveness, beloved, lest there's also repentance. Forgiveness is, simply means to sort of cause things to stand apart, to relieve someone from their guilt. And forgiveness, what we do is we take the offense and the guilt for the offense, and we make it to stand over here. And the person who has committed the offense, we put them over here. And so the Bible says things like this. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our sins from us. John says, no, the thing that happens in repentance is you turn around and you get moved to this side and you're forgiven. And your guilt for sin is moved to this side and God forgets it. This is what he's preaching in the wilderness as people come to him. His public ministry is summarized right there in verse 3. Verses 4 to 6 tell us that this public ministry was also prophesied. Uh, John, uh, we read it early in the scripture when Matthew, uh, I'm just calling all kind of biblical names, brother, when Wyeth, when wife read, when wife read the call to worship from Isaiah 40. Luke here now tells us that John is a prophet who himself was prophesied. 700 years before the birth of John, the prophet Isaiah was given this word that before the Lord came, there would be one coming before the Lord, a forerunner. Who would make straight the, the paths for the Lord, who would come before the Lord, herald the message of the Lord's coming, and make ready, Lord, the, 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 the pathway for the Lord himself. Now, what's striking is Luke reaches for verses four to six and quotes Isaiah, and I think we're meant to understand that that preparation, that making straight, the valleys being raised, the mountains being lowered, the crooked places made straight, that's not about bulldozers and terraforming, it's not a construction project in the soil. It's a construction project in the human heart. Here's another vivid ways of describing repentance. When the high places are brought low. The low places are brought high. What's crooked is made straight. And I believe that because of what we see in verse 7. Do you notice there in verse 7, Luke goes on to say, Therefore, we're giving the public ministry summarized in verse 3. We're giving the prophetic sort of, you know, uh, justification for that ministry in verses 4 to 6. And now we come to verse 7 and we get this, therefore, this is why John preaches what he preaches. He has come to make people ready for the Messiah so that verse 6, they would see the salvation of God and that making ready for the Messiah is boiled down to this repentance. And this repentance looks like a deep alteration of the heart. And so notice how John preaches his public public preaching. John's a preacher, man. Verses 7 and 9. And when we look at these verses, we're getting a kind of theology of repentance worked out in in his public ministry. His preaching is confrontational. You see that in verse 7? Notice there, the people are coming out to be baptized. And let that sink in. These are the people coming to be Baptized. These are not the folks going to the club. These are folks coming to do something religious. And I think John is well aware that you can be religious and be lost. That you can do all kind of external religious exercise and not have a repentant heart. And so John confronts them in verse 7 you brood of vipers. Next Sunday, I'm gonna try that as the welcome. <laughs> you brood of vipers. In a day again where we're told that we just got to be nice and we got to be toothy and smile and uh, you can't offend people. (laughs) right from the welcome John like in their face you brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath to come now see this is why John is so eager John knows that there is a God who has appointed a day where he will pour out his anger against injustice and sin the thing to be worried about is the coming judgment of God not the politeness of the preacher sometimes the preacher does the best favor for you when he gets in your face when he tells you what you don't want to hear and tells you about your real state before God, you brood of violence. If you notice in verse 18, we're told that this was good news. We're told that this is an exhortation. It is for the wise who have ears to hear. You brood of vipers, he confronts them about their standing before God, but notice number two, he confronts them about the quality of their lives. He goes on in verse eight, he says, bring forth deeds in keeping with repentance. In other words, repentance isn't simply a mental thing. Repentance, where it really happens, is accompanied by these good deeds. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John, were lot alive today? You would have had one of those Christian hip hop shirts that say, Bear some fruit. Bear fruit. This is how the gospel was preached from the earliest days. So you can write this text down if you want. Acts chapter 26, verse 20. Paul is there before King Agrippa, and he's given a testimony in defense in his own trial, and he explains to Agrippa what he preached all throughout the Jewish and the Gentile world. And part of what he says is, I preach that they should uh, repent and turn to God, and that they should prove their repentance by their deeds. There is no gospel preaching without the preaching of repentance, of turning from sin and turning to God and demonstrating that turn in a new direction and a new life. He confronts them about their standing before God. He confronts them about their lives. In verse 9, he confronts them about their future. Notice what he says, the ax is already at the roots. It's not at the branches. It's not even at the trunk. The axe is at the root. Here now, John comes preparing the way for the Lord, and he's saying to Israel, and he's saying to these, these men who come out to, to hear him preach, you, you need to understand that that the axe the of God's judgment is already in motion and it is being swung not at the periphery, it's been swung at the very root and base of the thing. So this forerunner is telling us about a coming king who's also judge. It's the fact that he's also judge which makes repentance so deeply necessary. See the logic of the text. Repentance, verse 6, brings salvation. The failure of repentance, verse 9, brings damnation. There are only two ways to live. There are only two ways to face, face the judgment of God to come, or face that salvation which he has brought in his son. And here's the thing, the salvation, it's behind our backs. We have to turn around to see it. And perhaps you're here this morning and you have never repented of your sin. You've never turned in mind and heart to agree with God about your sin and turn in mind, heart, and life to then begin to follow God. And you may be religious. You may have been raised in the church. You may be regular in the church. And you may be offended that the preacher is calling you a sinner. It's probably an indication that you don't understand your sin very deeply and you don't understand the necessity of your repentance. The offense is not that your sin is being pointed out. The offense made toward God is that you don't acknowledge it. And what has God done? He has charged you nothing for his salvation. He sent his son into the world to live a righteous life which we could not live. And Christ came into the world voluntarily and died the death that we deserve to pay the penalty for our sins. So that this wrath of God that's spoken of in verse 7 is poured out on Christ on the cross. So, so that sinners wouldn't have to absorb or suffer that wrath if they trust in Christ. And three days later, God raised him from the grave and, and demonstrated that he had accepted the sacrifice of his son in the place of sinners. All that's left to do if we can call it doing, is to turn from our sin and turn to the Savior. Trust and follow him to the salvation of God. (laughs) Don't be offended when God tells you he loves you. And when he loves you enough to tell you that you're wrong. And when he loves you enough to point you to his salvation. Don't be offended. Receive that follow that. This is John's message. He comes preaching this message, his public ministry of, of proclamation, and, and it was predicted. And, and notice now his practice of, of ministry. He's an interesting sort of pattern for pastoral ministry. We, we saw the confrontation in verses 7 and 9. Now notice how he counsels in verses 10 to 14. He, he confronts, but he also counsels. He, he preaches this blistering sermon. And in verse 10, notice how the people respond. Basically, Basically, what what do we do now? what what must we do to be saved? I love the way John MacArthur puts this, hard truth makes soft people. And that's what's happening in this text. John brings a hard truth and the people's hearts are are softened and they want to know, what what do we do to to see this salvation that that you are preaching about? And John gives a general principle and he gives a specific practice. Here's a general principle. Share. 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 You see there in verses 10 and 11, they asked the question in verse 10.
1: Verse 11, what does John
0: say? If you've got two coats and you see somebody who needs one, give them a coat, man. If you've got food and you see somebody who's hungry, feed them. That repentance looks like generosity. It looks like ordinary, every day, at the table, along the way, kindness and generosity to others who are in need. That With repentance, there's an opening of the eyes. We begin to see how generous God has been to us in Christ and how much God has given us in Christ. The very thing that we're celebrating right now at Christmas, right? And having seen that, we begin to look with generous eyes on our neighbors. And and we see those who have no coats and we see those who have no food. and, And we remember that our cupboards are full. And we got got multiple coats. coats. We didn't didn't have to choose between sort of one winter winter coat coat this morning coming to church. church, Many of us looked at the the closet and said, said, which coat goes goes in my shoes? shoes? I'm talking about the the brothers. brothers. (laughs) 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 And then we We walked or we drove to to Orr Elementary school. School. How many kids did we pass without a good winter coat? How many men did we pass with with only a hoodie? How many many people do you suspect we households we might have driven by that people inside are hungry? See, the repentant Christian life opens your eyes to some things. God's been generous to us, and now there is on us this, this compulsion to be generous with others. And if, and if we're not, we're, we're, we're not proving our repentance. And that's a general principle. Share. This is why if, you, if you're new to our church, you've not heard us talk about our five M's. We, we have five objectives as a church, and each of them, beginning with the letter M, one of them is mercy to the needy. We want this in the DNA of our church because it's in the DNA of a Christian. It's an odd thing to claim to be a Christian and to be indifferent to suffering. It's an odd thing to claim to be a Christian and to be indifferent to poverty. This text says when God opens your eyes and turns you, you see that stuff and seeing it, you are compelled to demonstrate your repentance by addressing it. And so we, we, we want to do this as individual Christians. As we go along the way in that Luke 10, Good Samaritan way, And, and we want to be like those lepers who are described, who, 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 were, who, who were outside the camp and the enemy's camp and was defeated. And, and they went to camp and they got all this stuff and, and they said, what shall we do? They said, we got to go back to the city and tell people. And so we want to reflect this in our private lives. We want to, we want to reflect this in our corporate life as a church. Not just in a benevolence line on a budget, however wonderful that is but but as the lord gives us life and time and opportunity we need to be a praying family about how this mercy and this sharing is manifest well beyond you know a temporary necessary kind of handout this is to be baked into us because we are people who have repented and the principle is repentant people share but now there's a more specific practice too. Notice there he goes on in verses 13 and 14 and, and some particular people speak up now. See verse 11 and verse 10 were the crowds. That's a sort of general application to the crowds but, but now some particular people sort of speak up. The tax collectors wonder what shall we do? And, and John answers here notice in verse 13 collect no more than you are authorized to do. Now don't don't write that in your Christmas card to the IRS this year. But, but he's, he's thinking about their vocation. He's thinking about their, their particular standing in life. And he's thinking about their particular temptations given their vocation. And he's bringing it down to a level of specificity now. Don't, don't don't take more than you are supposed to. He does the same thing with the soldiers in verse 14. They want to know too, what should we do? And, and he says basically don't bully and don't extort don't, don't use your position, position. Don't, don't use your, your power use don't your use your weapons to take from people rather be content with your wages our Presbyterian friends have a way of putting this in their statement of faith they say we must repent of our particular sins
1: particularly
0: that repentance isn't just a, a vague notion of turning it is, it is that generally That turning sort of brings with it a kind of specificity, a self-examination about our own lives. We think about ourselves in terms of our our calling, about our our station in life, and how we're using our calling, how we're using privilege, how we're using station to either help or hurt, to either sin or pursue righteousness. Righteousness. And maybe this is a good exercise for us this Lord's Day afternoon. To sort of get before the Lord and say, who who am I? What are my callings? Christian, husband, wife, mother, father, son, daughter, teacher, baker, police officer, whatever. And then ask ourselves, what's the particular temptation of my call? what what, what am I sort of drawn toward which would be sinful given who I am and where I'm stationed in life? And then ask ourselves another question. What specifically does repentance look like given those things? I mean, this text is just screaming at us. If we have no place for understanding repentance in the Christian life, we don't understand the Christian life very well. This is is as Luther said, that he says, I'm paraphrasing, that when God said repent, he meant keep on repenting. Uh, The Christian life, you enter into a life of repentance, a life of turning ever more toward God in that celestial city. Repentance is a wonderful discipline. So we see John's public ministry. But that only raises the questions of John's public identity. Who do the people say that John is? You see that there in verses 15 and 17? The people wonder in verse 15. And isn't it naturally the case that if someone has done you spiritual good and you appreciate their ministry, you begin to wonder about them, maybe even to elevate them in some way. And this is what they're doing with John. They're they're elevating John. John's growing in their estimation. They're wondering, this might be the Messiah. This guy right here, this might be the Savior that we have been waiting on. And John, notice John's humility in verses 16 to 17. He wants to fix that right quick. John says, no, no, no. I baptize you with water. It's it's symbolic, and it's, it's pointing forward to this forgiveness that is to come. But there's one who's coming whose shoes I am not worthy to tie. This one who is coming, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. going to baptize you with the very gift of God, the Holy Spirit himself. and His baptism will also be one of judgment. Again, there are only two ways to live. John's still preaching the same message, only now he's making it clear that this is being fulfilled by the Messiah. So if you'll forgive me for a moment, I'll just preach to Jeremy and Matt and Thabiti and every brother in here who aspires to ministry. Let us use all our fingers to point away from ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be the case if we're faithful to love people and care for people that people will appreciate us. And it will sometimes be the case that they may appreciate us too much. Or appreciate us in perhaps improper ways. Let us be men who never accept that for the safety of our own soul and for the security of the church and for the blessing of those persons. And the best way to do that, that I know of, is what John does right here. Point to Jesus. And then make it clear that we must decrease that Christ may increase. We can't be great and Christ great too. We can't be worried about people loving our sermons and loving the Savior too. It's not the same thing. I listened yesterday to a beautiful sermon, two of them. God preached his heart out and, and I was listening and putting books on the shelves and I was loving the sermon and I'm, I'm hearing him work the, text, work the text, work the text, work the text and miss the point of the text. And it was striking to me to listen to the people amen and shout and, and they enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed it, but, but on some reflection I go that was a great sermon but he didn't preach a great Christ. It was wonderful in all of its eloquence. It was artistic. It was balanced. It was, it was moving along, unlike this sermon. It just had a good pace. It was wonderful. And I leaned back and looked at that verse and I said, that is not what that verse is about. That verse is about Jesus fulfilling the promise of a new covenant and he made it about something else. My brothers, our ties." is to point to Jesus, that he might be great in the people's sight. And we can't point to him and ourselves at the same time. And sometimes, like John, we've got to redirect people that they would see the Lord for who he really is. And and they need to understand, all of our people who come and visit with us and worship with us, they need to understand that Christ is great in his love and he's great in his judgment. That's what all this talk about the winnowing fan is and the threshing floor. We don't have those today, but this is where a man would go in his granary and take this long-pitched fork and stick it into the weed and toss it up and the chaff would float away and the wheat would fall and he would separate the two and he would burn the chaff as weight, as, 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 as worthless but keep the wheat Christ's coming is going to be is this kind of sifting. He said it himself. He turns a a man's father against his sons and uh, mothers against daughters and, and the people of their own house will be their enemy. What is that? That's this winnowing fork. He is sticking that fork of the gospel into the world and he's tossing people like wheat and chaff is floating away to be burned in unbelief and wheat is being collected into the barns of God's family. In a world that that would only make Jesus the little baby in the manger, or only make Jesus some wise teacher, and would consistently and always deny that Jesus is also judge, Christians have to bear faithful witness that he is both. He is the saving Lord who gives his life, but he is the judging king who weighs us all. John points him out there for us in verses 15 to 17. Notice as we close on this first question, what do the people say? The people are often wrong in their assessment of who Jesus is, but the Christian's job is to make it plain. And we come down now to this final thing, John's persevering faithfulness. Verses 18 to 20. We see his faithfulness in in a couple of things in this text. Notice number one, we see his faithfulness with the gospel itself. He just keeps preaching this good news. Number two, we see his faithfulness in verse 19. He doesn't care about the audience. He preached this same gospel and necessity of repentance and God's judgment against sin with Herod the Tetrarch. And Herod got hot. And we see his faithfulness in verse 20, his faithfulness no matter the cost. Herod locked him up. and won't be long in the gospel before Herod puts him to death. To bear faithful witness about who Jesus is requires us to be careful with the message, to be confrontational, lovingly with people, and to pay the cost if Christ calls us to. That's the only way we make it clear that Jesus is Lord in both our preaching and our pain is that we bear the cost and that we don't fear man but fear God and we remain faithful with the message. That's his calling upon us. And this is how the world will know who he is. What do the people say? They get it wrong. Who has to get it right? The bearers of the gospel themselves. You and I, beloved. Jesus is Lord. Now the second question we want to come to quickly is, what does the Father say? What does the Father say? We see that there in verses 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This wonderful testimony here. We've heard John's testimony that Jesus is greater than he is. And he's bringing this salvation and also this judgment. But but what people say about Jesus doesn't quite settle it. We need, we need other, other testimony. testimony. And here we have the, we have we have the Father testifying to, as to who Jesus is. Notice is that Jesus' baptism. He had been baptized with all the other people. But now, we need to clarify, not for any sins that he had done. And the question is, why is Jesus baptized? Well, the other gospel writers let us know this. So if you keep your finger in Luke, turn over to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3. You're new to the Bible When I say chapter 3, that's the big number on the page. When I say verse, that's the small number. Matthew will be over to your left from Luke. Matthew chapter 3, Matthew records Jesus' baptism as well, and he gives us one of the answers as to why Christ was baptized. Look at verse 13, small number. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? You see his, his humility there before the Lord. Verse 15. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Christ has come into the world to, to complete or fulfill all the righteous requirements of God's law. We have broken all the righteous requirements of God's law. Here he is standing in our place, not just as our sin bearer, but also as our righteousness. And all the things that we owe God in the way of worship and obedience, in the way of, of faith and submission, Jesus provides perfectly. Even now to his baptism. A baptism that was for the remission of sins, which he had none of. But there's something more too. So look now over at John's Gospels. You come back to, to Luke and you go one Gospel further. John chapter 1, verses 31 and 34. John also records the the baptism of our Lord and has this dialogue between John the Baptist and, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice what's said in John 1, beginning in verse 29. The next day he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptized with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Jesus participates in this baptism for this revelation, for this announcement, for for this demonstrating to Israel that he is the Savior. And at his baptism, going back to Luke, confirmation of that is given from heaven. Well, this remarkable passage in such short verse. The heavens were open. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove. That's striking in and of itself, the Spirit, which is non-corporeal, doesn't have a body, is a, like a wind that blows where it wills and we don't see it, but we, we know it only by its effect. John tells us in John 3. Here, as far as I can recall right now, it's the only place where the Spirit takes a, a bodily form, a, a visible manifestation, and, and descends upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an indication of, of God and all of his persons being united in the revelation of Jesus as the son of God into Christ. And then the voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved son. I'm well pleased with him. The father steps vocally out of glory, and he testifies that the child about whom there had been some question is indeed his. It's his son. Has been his son from all eternity past. Will be his son for all eternity future. And he is no displeasing son. He is no errant son. He is no hard-headed boy. This young man of 30 who is the son of God incarnate. He is the son that pleases his father. You want to know what delights God? His son. He looks upon the Lord Jesus Christ come into the world and take the place of sinners. He says, this pleases me. And this is why all those who are in Christ, God is pleased with them also. For he looks upon us and he sees his son. And all that the son has done to please the father has, has become ours through our union with Christ and our faith in him. And this is why as a Christian we have every right To fight those nagging doubts that come along sometime. And to fight those nagging whispers that come along sometime. To suggest to us that God's not happy with us. Particularly if we have done the hard work of repenting of sin and coming afresh to God. We can come to God fully expecting that what we will hear from God is not condemnation but pleasure. What we hear from God is not a hard word of rebuke. He has given us that word to lead us to repentance. What we hear finally is what he says to his son right here in the baptism. I am pleased with you because of Christ. And all of our security before God, and all of our comfort with God, and all of our joy in his presence, and all of our sense of security and safety and delight come from this marvelous statement from heaven. Jesus is God's son, and God is pleased with him because we are in him through faith. God is pleased with us. Now, I should say one other thing about this text. It is obviously Trinitarian, isn't it? Here we see in this one scene all the persons of the Godhead. God the Father speaks from heaven. God the Son is being baptized. God the Holy Spirit descends on the Son in the form of a dove. Now, this one text stands really in in clear contrast to errors that Christians have sometimes made about the nature of God. They have sometimes taught that God takes one form at one time, He's a Father in the Old Testament he's Jesus in the gospel, and he's a spirit later, that there are these modes in which God exists. That's that's modalism. That's false. The fact that they all appear in the same text at the same time means that that sequence of modes can't be true. And and there have been times where people wrestling with the mystery of the Trinity have have tried to subordinate one of the other in, in some way so that Jesus, for example, is less than God, but kind of God, and 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 so so on and the spirit Spirit is a a a force force. no these are three persons one God each fully God each eternally God and this is what makes us Christian belief in this triune nature of God is part of what the church has always understood to be foundational to being a Christian so denying this is in fact to deny the faith it is to deny who God really is, and in that denial we prove we don't know him. And the gospel rides on this. This good news of our salvation, it depends upon a Trinitarian God. I read Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. And now you see that the Father appoints our salvation, and the Son accomplishes our salvation, and the Holy Spirit applies our salvation. Lose any one person in the Godhead, and all of the gospel house falls down. No, this this teaching about the nature of God is for our delight. It mystifies us, and and it's beyond us. It's bigger than us. And, And praise God, for if we could understand it all, God wouldn't be God. We would be. And yet it's not meant to confound us as much as it's meant to delight us. This one true God exists in three persons all of whom love us and all of whom have participated in our salvation. If we would know Jesus, we must know this God because it's this God who tells us that Jesus, not John, is his son and he is pleased in heaven. We've heard the testimony of John. We hear the testimony of the father. Then we hear in verses 23 to the end of the chapter the testimony of the genealogy. If John's prophetic ministry is sort of answering the, the scuttlebutt, the, the gossip, the, the conversation that, that happens about the identity of the Christ, and, and verses 21 and 22 is the father in some way sort of divinely vouching for, acknowledging, accepting as his own, the son, then the genealogy is really the, is the DNA test. It's the proof in genealogical records That Jesus is the Christ, and only Jesus can be the Christ. This is being established, notice there at verse 23, at the beginning of his public ministry, our Lord is about 30 years old at this time. Two things incidentally. Number one, the Lord was baptized when he was 30, and he began his public ministry when he was 30. That's the time in the Old Testament that the priests would begin their public ministry. And it's It's suggestive suggestive that that it's probably a good thing that we we be patient patient with the baptism of people, particularly children. children. If the Lord Lord could wait wait till he was 30 and demonstrate demonstrate some some maturity, maturity, uh, it's it's probably probably a good practice practice for us to to do that with our children and not not rush them them to the baptismal waters. waters. And the same could be true for men who are aspiring to ministry. If the Lord Lord could wait wait till he was 30 and and put up with a creation that he had made, only to come out publicly at this age and to begin his ministry, then, young man at 23, 25, 27, even 35, you can wait too. You can be tested. You can endure. You can learn something about patience. I can tell you the truth. Everything I've ever rushed in my life, I've messed up. And when you come to thinking about, you know, uh, to be to help me, help me go to seminary or help me be a pastor or help me do whatever, uh, my question to you is do you want to be the next thing I rush? let's be patient together our Lord demonstrates that that's all incidental, that's free but now notice the purpose of the genealogy in Israel if you've read your Bibles at all you know that when you read through the Old Testament every once in a while you, you get genealogy You get the record of people's lives, and it's being traced in various places in various ways. Well, the purpose of the genealogy is is threefold. Number one, to prove who was Jewish and who was not. To prove very broadly who was Jewish and who was Gentile. Why was that important? Because God's covenants have been made with Israel. The promise of a deliverer was a promise of a deliverer who would come through Israel, who would be Jewish. So in Deuteronomy chapter 18, when Moses is there prophesying, he says, God's going to send you another prophet, like unto Moses, who will be from your own number. He will, in other words, be Jewish. But number two, the genealogies were to prove then who could or who could not serve as priests. Who could or who could not serve as priests. Only Levites could. And this is why when you see in Nehemiah chapter 7, verses 61 to 65 or so, near the end of that chapter, when they are coming out of captivity and they are reestablishing worship in Israel, what do they do? They turn to the genealogies. And they register everyone who's coming out of exile according to their families and their clans and their genealogy. And when you get to 61 to 65, there's some people who come who can't prove they're Jewish. And they're like, uh, we're going to let y'all in the country. But you can't be priests. You can't be priests. The entire priesthood was prefiguring this savior who would be the great high priest, who would need to be Jewish. Number three, the genealogies were to prove who was or who was not a son of David. A son of David. You remember the promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where David had been daydreaming about building God a house and wanting to build God a house. And God said, I tell you what, I I don't need anybody to build me a house. That's that's nice that you want to do that. We'll let Solomon do that because you're a man of war. But this is what I'm going to do for you, David. I'm going to make sure that someone rules on your throne forever. There's someone who's going to come who establishes your throne, and that throne will never be taken away. And the ruler over Israel, the the Messiah, the anointed one, will be your descendant. And so the genealogies are being scrupulously kept in order to be able to prove not just who was Jewish and, and not who could be a priest, but who was more narrowly the son of David. Now there's something else that the genealogists have to demonstrate. You with me? You're in David's household. They also have to prove that you're not the descendant of one of David's sons in particular. That you're not descended from Jeconiah. Write this down. You can look at it later. In Jeremiah 22, verses 24 to 30. Jeremiah 36, verses 30 to 31. God addresses this king, Jeconiah, who is a a son of David. And God says to this particular son of David, no one from your house is going to sit on David's throne. So you got a promise that one of David's descendants, and he had a number of kids, will ultimately be the Messiah and promise that 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 Messiah won't come from this line of Jeconiah. And this helps us to understand one of the major differences between Matthew's genealogy and and Luke's genealogy. So I'm I'm getting to be a little bit of a genealogy geek right now. Some of you are into this, others are like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but just bear with me. You look at Matthew chapter 1, where Matthew records a genealogy there, he gives us the genealogy of Joseph. Luke here has given us the genealogy of Mary. We know that in part because of verse 23 being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Luke here has given us a very Jewish genealogy, which means that the entire genealogy is, is sort of recorded in, in, in the men, the male descent. And so we got the son of a son of a son. Matthew is stylistic. Luke gives gives us an an exhaustive exhaustive genealogy. Matthew sort of of breaks breaks it up up into what he calls his three generations of 14. He's he's being really stylistic there and and he's taking some liberties. So he includes four women in the genealogy and, and, and those Gentiles. Now, if the Messiah has to be Jewish and that's traced through male ancestry and he has to be a son of David and not a son of Jeconiah, why does Matthew tell us twice that Joseph is descended from Jeconiah. Matthew's gospel, I believe, is written to prove that Jesus is not Joseph's son, which is why he goes right out of the genealogy into the virgin birth narrative. Luke's genealogy is written to demonstrate that Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king that we have been looking to, and his genealogy is is, is transmitted exhaustively through his mother, Mary. Because that's the other thing we're told about the Christ. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. What are we told? The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Isaiah 7, 14 prophesies that the virgin will have a son. All of that is culminated right here in the genealogy. Proving that Christ is the Messiah. And you know what else it proves? Nobody else can be. Israel, since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, has long stopped keeping genealogical records. At least any records that could definitively prove someone's ancestry meeting all these criteria. Only here, in the Gospel of Luke, in the Holy Scripture, about Jesus, do we get the definitive evidence that the Messiah the world had been waiting on, the Christ of God, is none other and Jesus Christ. And we remember now why Luke wrote his gospel, don't we? Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. He writes to Theophilus and says, I've written to you this orderly account so that you may be certain of the things we have been taught. The genealogical record is here for us to be certain that what we have been taught about Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God, is certain. It's true. It's not, not down to the, the prophetic, prophetic report of John. John. It's not even down finally to the miraculous opening of heaven and God speaking, which we have not heard. It's right here, traced out over centuries, in answer to the question, who are you from? Where are you from? Jesus is the son of God, the son of Adam, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Jesus is king of kings. And Lord of Lords. He is the Christ and the only Savior. Of this we may be certain. And if you're here this morning and this Jesus is new to you, we want you to be certain of it too. That he has given his life as a ransom for you. As the only one fully God and fully man who could supply your righteousness and suffer your judgment. And live in the resurrection. It's because he is those things for everyone who would believe. Everyone who would believe is forgiven of their sins, reconciled to God, declared righteous as if they were Christ because his righteousness counts for them and will live eternally in the fellowship of God's love. We are certain of this as a church. We want you to believe it and to be certain and to be saved. If you have questions about that, stick around for service. Let's have tea and coffee and donuts. Any one of the brothers and sisters who are members of the church would be happy to talk with you further about this. Or make an appointment with any of us as pastors. Our numbers are on the back of the bulletin. We'd be happy to find the time to answer your questions and to talk through these things. Or even better, talk to the Lord Jesus Christ. In a moment, we're going to have a moment of silence to conclude our service. That's that's kind of our tradition. What we're trying to do is, is, is gather up in that moment of silence the things that we have heard, which are of enduring importance, which God from his word would have us believe. Did you know that that moment of silence could lead to an eternity of love? Take that moment. Talk to Christ. Call upon his name that you might be saved. And if you are his, take that moment. Talk to Christ. Adore your Savior, the only Savior of the world. Let's pray together. Father, we give you praise for your word. For speaking to us little people. For condescending, lowering yourself to speak to worms such as us. We are a brood of vipers apart from you. We were multiplying in our sin. We were lost, driving in the wrong direction. But in your great grace, you sent your son into the world and you sent preachers of your son into the world. And somewhere along the way, we we heard this good news that we could be free from sin, free from death, free from judgment, and free to love you, free to worship you, free to serve you. You set us free. And so we praise you. We give you all honor and glory and majesty now and forevermore. As we pray this morning, we pray that you would set someone free this morning. You would give faith where there was none And repentance where there was not. And so give life where there was not. Oh, Lord, we would, with all the angels of heaven, rejoice to hear the news of even one sinner saved by faith in you.
1: And we thank you that you have rested this not simply on the word of preachers. You've rested this not simply on miracles and theophanies. You have rested this on the
0: enduring truth and and, uh, certifiability. of of your your word. word. Thank Thank you for you for your word, in Jesus' name.